Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Prison, Incarceration and Reform. I am your host, Deniz Yonucu, joining from Newcastle University. Today, I am joined by Suna Parlak, Dilek Hüseyin Zadegen, and Hazal, Hazal Hürman to discuss Gülten Kışanak's powerful and inspiring book, The Purple Color of Kurdish Politics, Women Politicians Right from Prison. As the title of the book suggests, this edited collection was written from within prison. It's a one-of-a-kind collection of prison writings from more than 20 Kurdish women politicians. In the book, they reflect on their personal and collective struggles against patriarchy and anti-Kurdish repression in Turkey, on the radical feminist principles and practices through which they transformed the political structures and state offices in which they operated. Suna, Dilek, and Hazal are members of the Feminist Translation Collective that translated the book from Turkish to English. The English edition of the book was published by Pluto Press in 2022. Hello all, and thanks so much for joining me today. So would you like to briefly introduce yourselves because I know that you are all more than translators. So Suna, shall we start with you? Hi, uh, it's nice to um, be with you and also it's, it's, it's great um, uh, to be part of these op- uh, opportunities too. Uh, so yeah, uh, my name is Kutmarlak and I'm a, a member of the Kurdish Women's Movement too. And I was one of the Kurdish women political prisoners many years ago. So it is kind of like a, uh, it's heartbreaking and an emotional experience for me to be part of the, uh, uh, this group. So, uh, and at the moment, I, uh, I am working as a uh, harmful practices and domestic abuse officer. I'm supporting the woman who is running away from the state and then uh, domestic abuse and torture. I'm supporting them. Thanks so much, Suna. And Dilek? Thank you for this opportunity. I'm Dilek Hüseyin Zadegan. I am from Turkey originally, but I have been living in the United States for 20 years. I am an academic. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Emory University in Atlanta. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dilek and Hazal. Hi, uh, thank you, Dennis, for bringing us uh, together in this uh, conversation. Uh, I'm uh, Hazal, and I'm a PhD candidate of Anthropology and Humanities at Princeton University. Thanks so much. So I'm going to go ahead and start with my first question. Uh, Suna, I know that many of the authors, contributors of this edited volume is actually are, are actually your friends. And uh, so could you please tell me a little bit about Gülten Kış- the editor of the book and how this book came into being. Uh, thank you, Denise. So I I I knew uh, Gülten since like the early 1990s, and also uh, after I released from prison from since 2000, and then we kind of like work in the same uh, newspaper. And also later on, uh, her daughter Evelyn also became my friend. <laughs> so, so uh, Gülten is um, a remarkable Kurdish woman, and then she's been 
uh, imprisoned during the 1980s when the military coup happened uh, in Turkey. And at that time, she was a university student. And she'd been uh, imprisoned for two years. And then during her imprisonment, she spent six months in one of the, uh, um, it is uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the dog house, because this was an extra torture for, uh, uh, for her. And then, but they, they couldn't break her. And after she released, and she started the, um, the university again, and then she graduated as a journalist. And then she worked from the different um, variety of the uh, both uh, Turkish and Kurdish newspapers and magazines. And, and she was a, a wonderful um, journalist and editor. And also she was specialized to, so she was supporting the Kurdish woman journalists while she was uh, uh, doing her job. And then in early uh, 2000s, she also actively started working with the Kurdish in the Kurdish uh, uh, politics movement too. And then she was uh, she uh, elected a, a parliament in two times, and then the last time she was a co-mayor of Diyarbakir, and then she was imprisoned again. And then, and also just before the, she was uh, arrested again, the, the, there was a special uh, questionnaire asked by the Turkish Parliament group about her experiences in uh, Diyarbakir prison. And then they were mainly from the opposition parties, were from like a, a right parties. And then all, all MPs were kind of like a crying about her experiences. And just soon after when she's imprisoned, and then they just uh, soon forgot about her, uh, her their um, attitude too. So yeah, she, uh, while she's in prison, she started her, uh, she carried on her journalism um, experiences and then she started writing to different uh, journals and also different newspapers. And then because of the pressure of the others, so she started to write this book because she's so humble. She doesn't kind of like want to take uh, the attention from the others, but because it is just not her um, experience, it is also the very one of the main important um, um, struggle for the Kurdish woman and also international from, uh, feminist uh, uh, movements too. So this book uh, um, came into the um, uh, after the uh, pressure of her daughter and for us, and then she wrote it. And she did an amazing job, actually, bringing the voice from prison outside. And now we are able to read it in English. And I found the book extremely inspiring. On the one hand, it's about repression, extremely repressive state techniques. But on the other hand, it's 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 a very empowering book. It's very it's even liberating to read, and it's a lot to there's a lot to learn from the struggle of the Kurdish politicians. So yeah, it gave me goosebumps when I was reading the book. And Dilek, my second question is to you. So in the, just to provide a little bit of a background here to the audience who are not familiar with the, with the situation of the Kurds in Turkey, 
So in the preface, it's written that in recent years, pro-Kurdish activism has almost guaranteed imprisonment in Turkey. Could you please elaborate on that? Yeah, so of course we can trace it back to earlier times and maybe that will come up later. But I, I see the beginning of this backlash against Kurdish democratic politics, for instance, uh, that comes about after the 2015 elections. In the 2015 elections, the general elections in Turkey, uh, HDP, the, uh, the Kurdish um, People's Party, was for the first time able to um, have representation in the parliament. And that was kind of a democratic victory for the movement. You know, the movement has many uh, fronts, like, uh, but this is the sort of the electoral part of it. And I think since that um, success in the general elections, the Erdogan government's um, had had the the Kurdish uh, politicians, anyone who is doing Kurdish politics as a target, right? So we know the women in the book were elected uh, in 2014 local elections. They were elected mayors and co-mayors. We'll talk about that. And in 2016, um, in, in November, so it's about a year and a half after they were democratically elected, or two years after they were democratically elected to be co-mayors in these local governments, they were arrested under charges of terrorism and, um, you know, uh, what is what is that word? The blackmailing the government or trying to overthrow the government and declaring self-rule or independence kind of things. And this is just something I know from my childhood. That's this, when I was growing up, I grew up in Turkey and I went to really good schools, public schools. And there, when at any time Kurdish people or Kurdish language was mentioned, it was synonymous with terrorists, right? So in the mainstream media, all we see is the PKK is killing our soldiers and for nothing. And they just want to, you know, evoke terror in our hearts and they want to, you know, divide our country or something like that. And one anecdote I'm remembering, and this, I think, connects to how Kurdish activism is is um, criminalized. When I was in high school in the 1990s, in a class, we were discussing the the language families. Maybe some of you have heard me t- telling this story before. So Turkish belongs to the European language family, etc. And one of my friends who was of Kurdish origin, I know, he asked, Professor, where does Kurdish fit in into the family languages? And the professor said, and this professor is super well-educated, you know, a Kemalist, feminist person. She said... Kurdish is not a real language. It is a dialect of Turkey that over the years grew from people living in the southeast region of Turkey. And, you know, my friend, of course, knew better, but he did not have any any idea to like sort of push back like, uh, no, actually, it is a romantic language and, and it has its own alphabet and its own grammar rules. And um, so that is something about like how Kurdish people, Kurdish movement always brings to mind terrorism, always brings to mind like a part of Turkey. It has to be subsumed under Turkey. It has to be subjugated under Turkey. So, um, yeah, when Kushanak says that uh, pro-Kurdish activism has almost guaranteed imprisonment of in Turkey, I think that's what he's referring to. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. And um 
for the audience who are not familiar with the Turkish context and, the, and these Kurdish politicians' brilliant contribution to the feminist world making, could you please tell us a little bit about what you refer to with uh, co-mayorship? Mm -hmm. Yes, so in the Turkish election system, we did not have, um, before 2013 and 14, we did not have specific quotas or affirmative action to guarantee an equal number of representation from women in the parliament or in the government at all. And this was a... Um, initiative from the Kurdish movement, uh, from the democratic side to uh, show, you know, like put nominees on the lists. And when you're putting nominees for mayors in the local government in 2014 elections, they decided to put two nominees, one woman, one man in, 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 in the parts where they were um, running for mayorship. Right. And this this was actually not in the Constitution. This was not in the law, but the Kurdish, the HDP party fought in the court and put it in the law. So now it is legal, thanks to them, to um, to, to, to have two um, nominees running for one position, right? So it was unheard of. And um, when they were running, you know, like, so let's say mayor of Dersim, which is um, what I am, um, I am the translator of Nur Hayat Altun, who was co-mayor of Dersim. The people were a little confused. The voters are like, Who's running? Is it you or is it your husband? Is it, you know, who's going to be the mayor when the election is over? So this is such a new system, this new idea that uh, men and women are equal. And so they should have equal representation in the parliament to represent all of their constituents. Um, so that's the co-mayorship system that HDP um, brought in. And that allows then the, the feminist issues or women's issues to be on the forefront of the local government. So mm -hmm. that is a, that's the radical part of the mm -hmm. um, part of this. Definitely. And I guess not only in terms of elected um, mayorship, but also co-chairship, like all the leaderships in the Kurdish liberation movement are shared between men and women. And I don't know any other examples to this in the entire world. So that's why in my introduction, I was telling that this is there is a lot to learn from the contributions and uh, struggle of the Kurdish women. And to continue with the persecution against Kurdish people in Turkey, uh, Gülten Kuşanak also says that there is a political genocide against Kurdish activists. Dilek, would you like to continue elaborating on that aspect as well? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in addition to imprisonment, it is um, it has been banned since 2015 to speak about the Kurds being real people or real languages. So we're back to the 90s in a way um, in terms of talking about the Kurdish movement and the genocide. I think Kushanak is talking about is is both in the electoral politics, these arrests, you know, these like democratically elected people are arrested for overthrowing the government while they are actually running the government for the benefit of their constituents. They're doing their jobs, their duties. Um, so imprisonment is one way, this political genocide. And, and, and the other way that there are no longer, I mean, there are no longer really good um, allowed, like, books or literature or things about the Kurdish history or movement being taught in the schools at all. So that is kind of the silencing of this history that um, she is talking about. And anyone, you know, it used to be so 
I didn't live in Turkey at this time. I was already in the U.S., but there was this peace talks between the Kurds and Turks, right, in in, in in the early 2000s, I want to say. Um, but that is completely shut down now. So that seems to be just lip service by Erdogan's government at the time to appeal to some Kurdish voters for his party. But it is the, now a uh, 180 from there. Like we don't acknowledge the Kurdish presence. We don't acknowledge the history of what happened. Um, and it's kind of this underground research area, right? There is no support for this kind of research because we want it to go away. We don't want to talk about the history of um, Kurdish people and, and, and culture and nation. Um, so I think that's that's part of how we can think about this genocide. And of course, in 2013, in the big Gezi movements, um, the Kurdish neighborhoods in Istanbul and Izmir were especially active uh, against the government. And um, there has been killings and murder by the police of some Kurdish children. We are still mourning um, and other activists too. So it is a spectrum from imprisonment, silencing, and murder. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Drek. And my last question to you is about the authors of the book, their political activities, their role in the Kurdish liberation movement, their role in the Kurdish women's liberation movement, what kind of activities they were engaging in. Mm-hmm. They all have kind of different backgrounds. The the connecting point is they were they all come from twenty two women. They all come from uh, political Alevite leftist families, right? They were politicized early in their lives, so they were aware of the nineteen eighty coup and and its its devastating consequences for pretty much everyone, especially the the so-called minorities in Turkey, including Kurds and Armenians. Um, so they have this political upbringing, shall we say. Um, most of them have older brothers or fathers who were either in the guerrilla war uh, in the Kurdish movement or in prison uh, or activists. So they, they come from like an activist family background, most of them. And the other thing they some of the activities they did i mean they founded women's journals um, and newspapers in turkish and kurdish um they were active in organizing women's coalitions under the hdp so the the party had like what what we call women's branch right so that that is also new that women's branch of a party is not about like having tea parties or something like that, but it is actually about politically organizing to take care of, take care of the community, right? Because the state is not taking care of the community. So there was early on, I think in all these authors' minds, the very clear and correct understanding that the Turkish government is never going to be having their back. So there's this, um, all these women are very independent, autonomous, and I would say they're all go-getters from early on. They they can they know what they're doing. Um, Nurhayat Altun, Nurhayat Altun, who is I'm most familiar with, that's the piece I translated. She comes from this Alevite background, and one of the things that she did was. Um, to uh, be in charge of the budget of the party at some point. And she did such an amazing job with the budget that they had 
excess in the budget for the first time to, you know, so they were really sort of capable, independent women. I think that's part of the background and activists and they all have a sort of leftist background and and self-education, right? Because the education in schools is not really going to give you uh, what you need. As um, Asata Shakur says, you know, they, um, they, they will not give you the education you need to overthrow them, right? So you'll never get it in school. So they, they got this um, sort of self-education and they were very active in the public arena, both politically. So some of them are running for offices. Some of them are having administrative positions in the party. Some of them are more journalists, but they're all sort of these radical feminists. I think that's what brings them together. Yeah, and it's really inspiring. When I was reading the book, learning about amazing things they've done, for instance, uh, opening up uh, women's collectives, organic, introducing organic farming, creating um, farming collectives or offering fellowship for women. Mm-hmm. That one thing I want to mention, yes, so in Dersim, there was this public uh, lot that was empty, and um, Nurhayat Alton and the party, the women's branch, decided to have an organic farm that's a community community garden idea, and this was the women who were coming to sow and till and water everything, and they had, you know, like within a few months when they had their first produce, the men were kind of um, upset. It's like, what is this? Is this just woman's government like what's going on even though of course they're getting these produce as well in their homes right so they didn't really um some of the men helped out with the gardening but this was their own um sort of act toward self-sustainability right like this is just such an important part of the climate crisis right now how we can sort of be part of the local ecology and work with it and be self-sufficient in terms of agriculture. So that is a big thing. And I'd like to say sometimes in a bittersweet way, right, that the reason why Nurhayat Alton was in prison because she cultivated a community garden. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. And they've all done amazing jobs. And there's definitely a reason why they're in prison. They are going, they were going against the patriarchal structures. And what they've been doing was very transformative. And there's no place for, there's not much space for feminist transformative politics, not to mention in, in Turkey or occupied Kurdistan, but in our Unfortunately, Western societies, so-called Western societies as well, Western democratic societies, everything is so-called anyways. So, uh, Suna, I am going to come back to you again. Um, as you also mentioned uh, in my first question uh, about Gülten Kışanak, like Gülten Kışanak herself, many of the women who contribute to this book were imprisoned more than once, more than twice. Some of them were in prison while writing the book, then they left prison and then they went back to prison again. And they also talk about um, the Arbakır prison you also mentioned um, at the beginning of this interview. So the Arbakır prison is exceptionally notorious. It's a terrible place designed uh, for the exclusively for Kurdish prisoners. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the Arbakır prison? Why is it an exceptionally horrific place? Not just the Arbakır. I can say that all prisons 
is kind of like an exception in notorious places because, but of course the Diyarbakir has their own space. So Diyarbakir prison is one of, in the world, one of the most notorious uh, prisons ever. But uh, I think in, when Wilhelm was uh, in prison, around five women was in, uh, they were in the prison at, um, at that time. Some of them stayed one year, and then some of them stayed two years. And then I think um, Sakine Johnson, she stayed most of the times um, among them. And then, of course, um, for a long time, the Kurdish society didn't know what they experienced in, 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 in the prison. Because first, it is kind of like a, uh, their uh, male comrades also kind of like a try to hide what is what's happened to them. Secondly, they were also the society didn't want to face the what's happening when they um, towards them when they were in prison because they were tortured, they were sexually they were sexually tortured, they were emotionally tortured, they were kind of like a, um, a, a, a trying to be assimilated, trying to be. Um, um, to be in uh, be informer within within the prison, and then and also uh, there were kind of like a special uh, um, torture towards the woman prison, woman political prisoners too, because they knew that because if they affect the woman, and then they kind of kind of they can affect and break the families and the surrounding societies too. And also, at that time, it wasn't easy for a Kurdish woman to be in the politics. Uh, also, it's kind of like a, they, their families didn't want to, and they, they, they weren't supported them. And also, the society is kind of like a, because uh, nowadays, Kurdish society changed a lot in the uh, last 30 years. We say that there's a, a social, it's um, 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 called, um, Social revolution happened because of the Kurdish woman, but uh, most uh, um, predominantly because of the Kurdish woman's movement. Because after 1980s and during the 1990s, like a thousand of Kurdish women uh, attended in, um, uh, to be uh, the Kurdish politics movement, with whether it's illegal way or it is legal way, and also they changed the society and then. Uh, this part, especially this white woman being in the prison, and then they they um, they started to release their and uh, vocalize their experiences in the prison, and then also they affected the other prisoner to vocalize too. And also, especially during the 1990s, is more than thousand Kurdish women political prisoners were in prison, and still now, so there are more than thousand women in the prisons too. And also, it is um, it is kind of like a heartbreaking. Like a, more than 15 years, we didn't know what happened to them. And but recently, I think two years ago, there's one of the uh, women in prison. She start, she wrote her, her experience in prison. And also before her, also Sakine Johnson's uh, um, uh, before. Uh, she was assassinated in Paris by the uh, some Turkish um, man, and then she also wrote her experiences. Was happening in prison too. So 
And I think it's kind of like a important to vocalize and also share what, how you struggle against of the uh, military system, oppression, and also how you uh, take your place within the uh, your uh, political uh, movement too. Because it wasn't easy to uh, kind of like I say that we are we are the group of women and then we are also have our own autonomy. We are have our own voice and also how we uh, like a, being sister of the um, comrades and then coming to uh, co-mayor and the co-chair of the political parties. It was an easy to, uh, um, journey. And also, I just want to add one thing about the co-mayor and co-chair system. And Wilton was one of the part, main um, part in the system. And also, it wasn't easy to accept, just not accepted by the Turkish state. Also, it wasn't easy to get accepted by the Kurdish political movements too. We fought our rights within the system, in our political movements. And during the 2005, I think it was, uh, we started to have uh, like a co-chair system and then I served as the, the one of the writers within the book um, elected as a co-chair of the um, um, part, uh, Democratic Party. And at first, the, the, the general party didn't accept it. And then we kind of like uh, all Kurdish uh, women's delegates. Uh, and then we came together and then we had our secret uh, um, meeting. We said that we're going to uh, and, um, select uh, uh, ISIL as a, our co-chair, and what do you decide? What What is your opinion? And then all the women delegates, they said that we are supporting this. We are here if you are here. Then I was a joint, I was a uh, editor at the uh, um, newspaper uh, for Daily Woman page, and I made an interview with ISIL just before the, a day before the uh, Congress, and then we said that ISIL is our, we declared that ISIL is our co-chair for the Kurdish women's movement. And then the Kurdish political party have to accept our co-chair That's amazing. That's amazing. And one of the things I like the, uh, I like the most in the book is this secret women's meetings, how women were organizing meetings secretly, discuss things, but they never have disagreements in front of women. They can have, sorry, in front of men. So they can have disagreements when men are not around, but they're always a united front against the men. So I found this is, this is a great feminist practice. Of course, we'll have our fights. Of course, we'll have our quarrels. But it's important to remember um, that uh, when and where to have those fights. And the other thing I really liked about the book, uh, and you also mentioned this, Suna, that how these women were fighting at various fronts, so not against, not just against colonial structures, not just against patriarchal structures, not just against Turkish men, but, uh, but waging a war 
a political feminist war at, uh, at uh, various fronts. And I really liked that they all started telling their life stories. So they are writing from free prison. They are writing under very difficult conditions, but they don't just about write what's happening in the prison, but they all started, and I, that's thanks to Britain um, Kushanak's questions, I guess. They all started from childhood. So we can trace their lives. We can have a sense of a feeling of being witness to their lives. And that I found extremely empowering and and inspiring because you can see how those fights that started at an early age, so not being able to speak Kurdish at school and finding yourself in a school where you are forced to speak Turkish and being feeling embarrassed, excluded because of that, yet not giving up or give, uh, having born up in a patriarchal family in a patriarchal society, again, being excluded and being limited by many things, but not giving up. So it's it's really, really amazing, and it gives one hope, and I think this book should, uh, among any, any other modules, courses, this is what I, we call courses in the UK, modules, um, in feminist uh, and gender studies courses, definitely, I think it has a lot to teach. And speaking of prisons, uh, Hazal, my next question is to you. The contributors of this book also talk about F-type prisons, solitary confinement. So could you please tell us a little bit about F-type prisons, isolation, and solitary confinement yeah, in, uh, in this context? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, uh, when the original Turkish version of the uh, purple color of Kurdish politics went to press, uh, F-type prisons were the prototypical high security prisons in Turkey, uh, where inmates are isolated, uh, being forced to do time in one or three people's cells. And this logic of strict isolation has attracted criticism of human rights activists since its design in late 90s and in institutionalization in early 2000s. Uh, but while uh, the punitive infrastructure of the state renews itself pretty often and fast, uh, since the time the book uh, had been published, actually there have been new types of isolation prisons introduced to the system, such as S-type and Y-type prisons. Uh, these new punitive structures resemble F-type prisons uh, mentioned in the book in their isolationist logic, but oftentimes they exceed F-type prisons uh, in terms of rights abuses and harsh disciplinary mechanisms implemented in them. And of course, it's not possible to think of these um, changing methods of punishment independent of social and political struggles behind bars and beyond bars. Uh, and the trajectory from the institutions like the Arbaker military prison we just talked about to F-types introduced in early 2000s and recent proliferation of new high security prisons drive prisons forward as uh, sites of contestation between the state and social forces as various academics pointed 
uh, at. Um, and as uh, Suna mentioned, for instance, the prisons of 98 military junta, uh, such as the Arbakir prison, sought to discipline uh, the prisoner much like a soldier. Uh, in the 19th, uh, the disciplinary power behind bars, in a way, changed hands in Turkey. Uh, the prisoners in political wards of 1990s forced the prison authorities to recognize their relative autonomy by responding to prison discipline with hunger strikes or uh, forming uh, prisoner communes, which organized education sessions, implemented uh, party courts, or uh, created their own structures of daily activities. And it was precisely this growing autonomy uh, of political prisoners that the Turkish state uh, was responding to by introducing F-type prisons uh, with small unit confinement. Uh, this policy, of course, created its own resistance, uh, which took the form of a massive hunger strike. And to this, the state authorities responded uh, with the deadly operation Return to Life. Uh, with a military operation implemented in 20 prisons, the strike was brutally suppressed, resulting in the death of 30 prisoners. And Eventually, many of the contributors of the book, such as Aysa Tuluk, Edebe Şahin, Figan Yüksekta, Gülser Yıldırım, Gülten Kuşanak, Nuhayat Altun, and Sebahat Tuncel were all detained in F-type prisons, marked by heavily digitized security procedures, strict surveillance systems installed in hallways and isolationist architectures. And as I said, like over the last couple of years, uh, especially since 2021, we are witnessing introduction of three new types of high security prisons, also disproportionately targeting political prisoners. prisoners and Kurdish politicians. And among these, for instance, in S-type prisons, uh, we see surveillance cameras even enter the cells in which prisoners are detained, mostly alone in strict isolation. Uh, we see like infliction of military di- uh, discipline uh, during prisoners' commute to visiting hours, or we see um, limitation of like visits or or uh, prisoners' times out cells as mechanisms of disciplinary punishment. Um, I guess like the one recent uh, statement by the Human Rights Association also, um, I think it's a fitting description of F-type prisons and this emerging high security prisons uh, is to describe them as like sites of heavy torture spread over time. And this, these are the main uh, like forms of prisons that uh, Kurdish women politicians are kept uh, today, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And you translated Aysel Tuluk's piece, uh, Hazal. Uh, she suffered from dementia in prison. Could you please tell us a little bit about Aysel Tuluk's problems in prison and in general, the um, Ill, Ill prisoners in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest parts of translation process uh, for me was uh, doing the update at the time the book went to press uh, about the like situation of the person I translated, like about the situation of Aysa Tuluk I translated, because I guess we all uh, like translators maybe in a really optimistic way hoped that we can write like politicians are like 
released from the prisons. Uh, but not being able to say so until October 2022, uh, in the case of Arsat Tuluk, was particularly daunting. Uh, Arsat Tuluk, as you just said, had been diagnosed with dementia in July 2021 when she was in prison. And the diagnosis actually had been approved by local hospitals and a team of nine medical doctors from the Forensic Medicine Department of Kojeli University agreed that uh, her condition demanded immediate suspension of her sentence. Uh, nevertheless, as it happens uh, with the like cases of ill prisoners, Istanbul Forensic Medicine Department time and again rejected to act in line with these uh, medical reports, uh, despite the repetitive appeals of the lawyers of Aysel Tuluk. Uh, furthermore, both the Turkish constitution and the laws and regulations on the execution of sentences in Turkey, in addition to international norms, stipulated the deferral of the incarceration of Aysel Tuluk, just like uh, many other ill prisoners. Uh, in this response to failure of courts in abiding with these regulations, in February 2022, if I'm not mistaken, a platform was established to call attention to the human rights violations of ill prisoners in Turkish prisons, uh, which are embodied in the case of Aysel Tuluk. And eventually Tuluk was released from prison in October 2022 after six years behind bars. However, there still are more than 1,500 ill prisoners, more than 600 of those being severely ill. And since 2016, furthermore, over 100 ill prisoners lost their lives in prisons. Um, I, I just want to say a little bit about like this also the... Uh, double standards, like when it comes to ill prisoners or like medical services within prison, because meanwhile, um, while all those were happening, like um, or continue to happen, uh, using his constitutional power to revoke the punishment of ill prisoners, the president Erdogan recently granted amnesty to the convicts involved in the Sivas Madamak massacre, a massacre killed uh, like 37 mostly Alawite intellectuals, uh, and he granted amnesty on the grounds of aging and illness uh, similarly just to, be, just to be clear here Hazal so the amnesty is granted to the perpetrators of uh, those who committed in massacres yeah, yeah? <laughs> and similarly using the same power he also enabled the release of one of the Hezbollah convicts Mehmet Emin Absoy who was back then sentenced to aggravated life imprisonment like we actually witnessed a similar double standard or rather put the intersection of medical and judicial violence during the pandemic too. Uh, Turkish penal system responded to COVID-19 pandemic with regulations that allowed the release of 90,000 prisoners, but left political prisoners outside the scope of these regulations. So in this in a way, like the notable uh, bodies of like Kurdish political prisoners or pers- like Kurdish political prisoners, prisoners as such are being rendered unredeemable uh, with like Erdogan's selective use of his constitutional presidential power or the pandemic regulations. And these all in a way uh, like reveal the hierarchies drawn between those lives worth of living and disposable others behind bars. Yes, thanks so much, Hazal. This is, uh, I don't know what to say and how to continue after this. Um, my final question, I like to, uh, because I am doing interviews in Policing, Incarceration and Reform Channel, I always 
we it's on a, a, a it's impossible to not to talk about dark dark things and my tendency is towards the end of the interview I always or my last question is mostly about hope or more optimistic things but sometimes it's difficult to move to the optimistic questions um, after certain uh, discussions so like the one you just told us um, but the book is also about difficult things at times it can be really heartbreaking but as I said it's also very inspiring so there's a lot of humor in the book there's a lot of darkness but there's a lot of humor in the book which uh, which I appreciated a lot and uh, I'm familiar with that political culture so I could sense uh, feel it in the book and that's been really a great experience to read uh, and prisons too like on the one hand a lot of dark things are happening in the prison but on the other hand prisons are sites of resistance sites of amazing and amazing solidarity, the kind of solidarity perhaps you would never be find and be able to find anywhere else. So if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about the solidarity relations in prisons and, and resistance in prisons? Of course, yeah, I think I think I can start with saying the book itself uh, is a product of solidarity in and across prisons. Um, also like... Um, uh, Suna mentioned like how humble Kishanak is and like in her preface she also writes about, uh, in her preface to English translation she also tells uh, how she was repeatedly asked to write about her experiences in the Arbukir prison and then she adds and I will just quote her here uh, and she says I got a better idea uh, the last thing I wanted was to draw solely on my experience and opinions every woman's story is a precious treasure and considered together they reveal amazing energy and power gathering, compiling, and publishing them all, I thought, would contribute to women's struggle for freedom. And I think the energy and power Kushanak talks about crystallizes in this book, which came to being despite the dire conditions in prisons, uh, also like um, conditions that make like bringing together these essays pretty hard, uh, such as hardships in remaining in touch across prisons due to repeated transfer of political prisoners from jail to jail as a way of punishment, Uh, arbitrary policies of prison authorities in limiting written correspondence across inmates, or their refusal to send the chapters uh, the contributors wrote to the editor by deeming the content objectionable. Um... Uh, and also, like of course, like as I mentioned, try to uh, mention briefly with respect to the formation of communes in political wards of the 1990s, the hunger strikes responding to the introduction of F-type prisons, Turkish prisons continue to be sites of resistance and solidarity, as you suggested. And in fact, uh, one of the contributors, Sabahat Tunjal, for instance, made her way to the parliament from prison in 2007 with the help of solidarity of incarcerated women. Uh, in addition to the election campaign beyond bars, incarcerated Kurdish women activists worked hard for Tunjal to win the election from prison by establishing their own election commission that wrote leaflets, reached out to the journalists. Today, uh, Sabahat Tunjal is back in prison, uh, but solidarity and resistance 
persist. Uh, she declared a couple of weeks ago, for instance, that uh, they would not receive food from prison authorities for three days in protest of uh, mistreatment of ill prisoners behind bars and as a show of solidarity with ill prisoners. Um, but of course, key to these networks of solidarity are channels of communication across prisoners, which were directly attacked by transitioning to F-type and other forms of high security prisons. But the literature on Turkish prisons and beyond also demonstrate that even those total institutions cannot create a total order and are marked by tactical resistances of different forms, uh, like in the case of F-type prisons, for instance, uh, even under conditions of strict isolation, the prisoners find ways of communicating with each other, throwing like nylon balls or prison walls across cells. Uh, and beyond this, as you just said, like with this, especially through the elements of humor, the book also attests to more mundane, minute ways of solidarity and resistance behind bars. Um, one of the contributors, Figyan Yüksekda, writes from Kocaeli F-type prison of balls of holiday candy, pieces of cake and pepper, etc. thrown across cells, depending on the needs. Uh, Leila Güven tells of the welcome pranks to newcomers to keep each other's morals up. Uh, other women tell about the exchange of skills of survival, including how to use water boilers or radiators to make coffee, to cook, to make a toasted sandwich which uh, through the recipes shared across South Atlas. So which, which this, with this spread each and every chapter, actually, like regardless of how dire conditions they describe are, and with a message of resistance and solidarity and hope. And I think like um, Sabah Tunja's conclusion that its translator Emek shared at another event yesterday sums this spread up pretty well. So I will just read this and conclude. Uh, while we are in prison, she says, we aren't ju uh, just trying to bear problems. At the same time, under the difficult conditions of imprisonment, we are building communal living spaces. We are forging the most beautiful relations of comradeship and feeling the most intense love for and determination with the other inmates. We are experimenting with the possibilities of free thought and free life, despite the restrictions of these cold gray places. Uh, of course, these mundane forms of solidarity, resistance and survival are invaluable, but I also don't want to fall into the trap of like over romanticizing it and would conclude with an invitation to international solidarity to address uh, and challenge uh, atrocities faced in Turkish prisons, especially now when only in two years, 15 new prisons are constructed. Uh, seems like we are entering an even more challenging phase, making international solidarity even more urgent. Thanks so much, Hazal. Definitely international solidarity is most urgent uh, right now, and this book is not just a book on resistance and oppression, but it's also a call for uh, solidarity as well. And uh, I think it should be assigned in many, many classes, including classes related to policing and incarceration, classes on the Middle Eastern politics and feminist uh, and gender and sexuality classes, classes on social movements and resistance. There is a lot to uh, learn from this book. Uh, so I'm definitely going to assign it in my 
classes and thanks so much uh, for joining me so thanks so much for contributing to this amazing book first of all and thanks for, so much for uh, joining me today thank you thank, thank you, you.